Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. Good evening. Uh, I'd like to welcome you all to the Royal Academy. I'm Laura Mark and I'm the Architecture Projects Manager here at the RA. In 2015, the RA ran a competition calling for architects to come up with a new creative uses for London's brownfield sites, led by Owen Hopkins, who's here in the audience tonight. Uh, the competition asked for ideas that were innovative, imaginative, research-driven, and ultimately capable of realising the potential of these missing pieces of London's urban jigsaw. The resulting projects offered new infrastructure, housing, community projects, creative studios, and proposed a new typology for courthouses and the administration of justice. Tonight, we've invited back three of the finalists, Almanac, Atelier Kai, and Chetwoods, to talk about their projects and to tell us about how their ideas have developed from the initial competition entries. The event will begin with short presentations from each of the practices, and this will be followed by a discussion chaired by the London Assembly member, Tom Copley. After this, you're all invited to join us for drinks next door. So let me introduce the architects. First, we will hear from Chris Bryant of Almanac Architects. The practice's idea for the Urban Jigsaw competition proposed creating a network of spaces for artists and makers to practice and teach in Waterloo. Since the competition, they have been working on a number of schemes which move this idea forward and are championing the creation of artist-lived workspaces on meanwhile sites across London. Next, we'll hear from Carter Fodor of Atelier Kite. In response to the Urban Jigsaw brief, Atelier Kite rethought the role of the domestic kitchen in response to dem demographic changes, environmental concerns, and the technological developments. The proposal has led to the practice collaborating with developers, municipalities, and environmental and research organisations to both advise on and create co-living environments, shared urban kitchens, and public town feasts in a number of schemes across the UK, Ireland, and in Denmark. And finally, we'll hear from Chetwood Architects founder, Laurie Chetwood. Back in 2015, Chetwoods proposed using a redundant underground rail mail route, which runs six miles between Paddington and Whitechapel, to deliver parcels again. Since 2015's urban jigsaw competition, Chetwoods has continued developing the proposal, which has evolved into a fully costed solution. There's now a funding strategy in place to deliver, fin deliver financial return without public sector gap funding, and Laurie will take us through this. Before handing over to our first speaker, I'd just like to thank our supporters for making this possible. Um, the Drew Hines Endowment for Architecture and our 2018 lead sponsor, Turkish Ceramics. So now, without further ado, please welcome Chris Bryant. Good evening. So, my name's Chris Bryant. I'm one of the directors at Almanac Collaborative Architecture. And I'm going to give you a 15-minute presentation of why we got involved with this, and what we were proposing, and where we've got to now. So first of all, we're Almanac, we're an architecture practice, um, but we're pretty broad in what we do. So we get involved in art installations, um, public consultation, community engagement, um, we teach, we're involved in research like this, and um, we build buildings, sometimes out of gingerbread house, if you've seen our work before, sometimes out of more conventional materials. So the underlying premise of our research project was, was to explore the provision of space for artists and creatives working and learning in Waterloo. <coughs> Waterloo is where our office has been for the last nine years, so we thought it was a good place to start, a place that we knew well. And it was in response to a number of key problems. There's a well-rehearsed modern cycle. Artists move to our area, land values go up, artists have to move out. 
we don't then provide for artists generally in those spaces, as a general rule. So only 7% of artist studios are purpose-built, which means that artists are um, very good at finding buildings to reappropriate, but it also maybe reflects some of the value we have on those artists. But just, just as we need teachers, doctors and nurses, we also need creatives. There is a strong economic reason. £42 billion worth of the London economy comes from the creative industry, which is 47% of the UK creative industry. That's more than the life sciences. And yet maybe we don't quite value that. Secondly, there is a homogenisation functionally and aesthetically of the high street, but not just the high street, London in general. Soho, Islington, Hackney, they are losing their individual identity, which their, their makeup creates London. And places like Berlin, Margate, Nottingham are becoming far more viable for artists and people involved in creative industry to go and live. And it's important that we don't get into the idea of just importing artists when we feel like we need art, an art wash. Art isn't just about, con about consuming, it's about our identity, our cultural heritage. Very interestingly, there was an article last week in The Guardian by James Tapper. Um, this is uh, Laura Provost, who won the Turner Prize. The Guardian, left-leaning paper. If you go on there and you look at the comments, they're always sort of... We should give money to everybody, like, you know, save the world, save the world. But really interestingly, there's a number of articles on The Guardian about Londoners having to leave, uh, artists in London having to leave because they can't, um, can't afford to live here. And generally the comments are pretty similar. It's a pretty, that's pretty sort of what people, pretty vitriolic, um, generally not really saying, understanding why we should have a space for artists. And there is obviously the economics, the 47 billion, but, but there's something more than that. And it's not just artists, it's a space to work. 80% of us have sedentary jobs, which are office-based. And there's a wealth of um, evidence that working with your hands, um, working outside, being practical is much better for, um, for, for mental and physical well-being. Um, hairdressers are some of the most satisfied workers in the country because, one, they give instant satisfaction to most of their customers, but also they're working with their hands. They're creating every half an hour, an hour, depends on which hairdressers you go to. So creating with your hands is really important, as was proven by this great music video, for those that you remember Lionel Richie. And there's books and lots of books about how this is, how this is really good, and we, we all sort of enjoy it. And we have to be a bit careful as well, is that the value, the value that we put on um, artists and creating is being devalued in our educational system now. So in the last year, 10% less students are taking the equivalent of GCSE art. It's to do with funding cuts and, the, and, and, and how we feel about those um, subjects as a, as a nation, or as, you know, how, how it's being perceived as a nation. And so there's lots and lots of good people doing things about this. You know, this isn't a, a, a sort of brand new problem. And you know, you look at people like Space and Acme and Beaux Arts and Create, Somerset House, certain London boroughs, the GLA to an extent, are doing things around this. But it's, but it's a real problem.
And so we looked at three ways in Waterloo that we might reverse this trend of losing space to practice creative uh, practicing. And there are three, urban dentistry, public land policy. I'm going to quickly go through these and then tell you a little bit about how our thoughts have developed into sort of more real projects. So urban dentistry really is about bits of land that everyone thinks are useless, they're obsolete in the economic or practical circles that, that we think about, um, and they're all these odd, strange shapes, and so these, for example, are a number of volumes that we found in Waterloo. Um, that's the river at the top, that whited out part. Um, our studio's in the middle, it comes up on another slide in a second. Um, so, for example, under a bridge, Waterloo, £15,000 later, you could do that. Okay? It's, not, it's not permanent, it's not going to solve the artist studio problem, but it's about the temporary is a great way of testing. Could that be a two months artist residence for a graduate? Public land. The red dot is our studio. So Lambeth has a lot of land. Um, essentially it's public ownership. Um, there's some of them selected there. Obviously, Lambeth is under pressure. It, has, you know, it, can't, it can't just do whatever it wants to land. There's pressures from the people, pressures from the councillors. But this is a Waterloo site. This is a, um, a, it was essentially a temporary library on Waterloo Marsh. Could we do something with it? One of the things we, really, we think is really important is that the homogenization of the street is also about the aesthetic. So it would be great if artist studios just didn't just look like office buildings that had been repurposed. What actually happened is that Meanwhile Space, with Lambeth, turned it into this, which was a uh, work hub, a Meanwhile her work hub. And it's now game planning to be turned into this, which looks dull, okay, it looks dull, but it does have workspace in it. It's not perfect, but it does have some good elements in it. Um, I'm maybe not doing it very justice. I picked a pretty bad drawing, although they did draw it, so. That's not my fault. Um, and then the other one was, was policy. So what if 2% um, of all these big shiny buildings going up around Waterloo and, and Blackfriars, what if 2% or 1% had to be given over to creative activities and whether that was artist studios or somewhere you could go and um, you know, learn how to um, do pottery or live drawing classes? Um, what would that look like? So we thought, that's 2%. That's a lot of space, okay? The model we did for the exhibition. Because that glass building could be anywhere in the world. You know, what's, how does that relate? And then what happens is, if you think about this, that, that there might be these different um, ways of doing things, these different threads, is you could build up a network of spaces. Because individually, a single space might not do much, but some meanwhile with some permanent, some small with some large, some space that is given over in section 106 um, to, to creative working um, would be really beneficial. We understand that there's a lot of pressure in talking to people that have worked at Lambeth or talking to people at other boroughs. You know, they have to be able to say, we're doing this, and they're going to get a lot of questions. Well, why isn't it just housing for nurses? Or why isn't it space for a new doctor's surgery? So it is complex, but we sort of think it's an important point. Um, and so basically from there, so 
and this is all about what happened after we did. So, so we did this. We sort of finished here on this big model um, and this exhibition. And um, we then actually started having lots of really interesting conversations um, with Lambeth, where we work, which is really important for us to work in the borough where we reside. Um, Barking, who are doing some really interesting things. People like Acme. Um, we had conversations with them. One of the things we've been doing actually quite recently is working with Acme and looking at some of their buildings and saying, um, you know, can you build on top of your existing buildings? Can you build in your car parks? Can you create um, work live? Um, or can you create a set of housing that's tethered to nearby studios? Um, and how might that look? And what sort of kit, kit of parts can we use? Um, and we looked at sort of different modules, and could this be a modular system? And we started then looking at housing that is actually outside of the London Design Guide. So because the London Design Guide is quite tight in terms of what is and what isn't housing, um, it doesn't necessarily allow for this level of flexibility. Um, the new London plan has some really good things about meanwhile space, but, but we think there's the space for it to have things about um, or, or be more robust on work and living. So we were looking at a few of Acme's sites at the moment about um, giving some space to artist housing, obviously because the, the housing is, is almost as important as the studio. There's no point um, having a studio in central London if you have to live in Gateshead. Barking. So Barking is, um, at the moment, the lowest cost place to live, borough in London. Um, and this is their slogan, which is punchy. You know, Berlin's amazing. Um, but Barking is also really interesting. Um, the other one is Bar Barcelona. That's the other um, thing they're going for. Because they're led by some very ambitious people. And we got to talk about Barking. And they are doing a scheme. They asked us to look at a scheme and get involved in um, a conversation about housing specifically for artists. 12 flats right next to the Barking station with studios just for artists. And that's quite a strong thing to say. I mean, it was in collaboration with Create, again, a great organization. But it's quite a strong thing to say because you're saying that's, we're putting some massive value there. That bit of land could provide housing for probably 20 families. But they were saying 12 artists plus studios. There's a deal there. They, they need to sort of engage in the community and, and, and things like that. Um, but it's really ambitious, and it's going ahead. And we were one of, sort of five architects that were looking at this, involved in discussions, talking to artists. Um, and obviously, all artists work differently. So, you know, we have to start being, a, you know, thinking about that when we're designing these spaces. It's not just a one size fits all. And that, that was our scheme. And then, we, so we look at probably, and this is the last project. So again, that our office um, is in the middle of that. This is one of the spaces. So um, Lambeth actually came to us, and there's a special needs nursery. And, and as um, special needs get incorporated more into mainstream education, there's actually not much use for this building anymore, and it was closed down. And this isn't specifically for creative workspace, but it is for low-cost workspace. So this is sort of we're in the early stages. So we've, um, it just got ninety thousand pounds from the Good Growth Fund, which is a GLA funding program for this type of uh, space. It's a meanwhile space. Um, and there's uh, sort of uh, exist, sort of bottom part is existing, the existing school with some workspace, then we're adding this element on top. Um, you can see there's a community facility, there is a work hub, 
Um, I think the important thing, though, is it's going to be delivered for £80 a square foot um, or less, which is very low cost. It's 50% um, it's affordable, which um, is 50 to 80% of market rent of the workspace. It's, it'll be there for five or ten years. Um, meanwhile, I think lots of boroughs have learned needs to be five to ten years. Two years really doesn't work because you've got an inception year and a get out year. Um, there's the contribution, it's going to provide 800 square foot of um, workspace for, for local um, businesses. And again, it's not specifically creative workspace, but we, we think it's going in the right direction. We think there's an issue about how, um, I think a lot of people recognise this, there's an issue about how we value the creative industries. I think it has changed, actually, since we were doing this in 2014, 15. Um, I think there is a bit more from Londoners, from local authorities, understanding this. Obviously, the housing crisis, which at times gets hysterical and is very emotive, has, did for a while maybe overshadow the need for workspace and the importance of the creative industries. Um, it's still a major problem. It's still one of the you know, great problems. But we think there is movement. Um, and for us, this is sort of the start of, you know, we're still very young architects. This is the start of our uh, approach to looking at how we can work with people to, to deliver these types of spaces and create a city that reflects um, as both aesthetically and functionally the quality of sort of creativity um, and the individuality of the creativity in the um, different London boroughs. Thank you. Hello, so I'm Kota, representing Atelier Card. Um, it is very special for us to be back at the RA because our practice didn't actually exist before the Urban Jigsaw uh, program. Um, we are basically a multidisciplinary design workshop or a collective of architects and economists and we're all very committed for a more responsible coexistence of people with each other and with their environment. This is, was kind of the main image of the, of the original Hackney Kitchen project that we submitted uh, two years ago here. And I think before I would kind of show it in detail, I'll just ask how many of you are familiar with the original project? Uh, not very many. Okay, so I'll go into a little detail, but I don't want to use all the time to explain uh, kind of the small technicalities. But then I'll, I'll, I'll do it a little. Um, so basically, we wanted to address the housing, urban housing crisis. And our main point was, in simple terms, that the kitchen is one of the most key elements in the city, not just in the home. It is a point that is at the intersection of our homes, of our food supply chains, our main services, and the waste management system, all of which represent huge challenges for our future cities. And um, um, our point was that if you change the logic of the kitchen, you can very effectively uh, also change and affect these four uh, other uh, areas. Um, so again, in, in very simply put, what we proposed is merging uh, kitchen spaces uh, with grocery shopping in housing complexes aimed at uh, people living in non-familiar uh, housing setups. 
Um, so basically, what we proposed is to compress the uh, urban food supply chain, the consumption end of the food supply chain, and actually work out all the details of what that means if grocery shopping happens in the same space where you cook food and where you eat food, how that might work out. Um, at the end of the Urban Jigsaw program, we presented it on, on, the, on a model of a uh, kind of a sample housing complex, uh, explaining how uh, a combination of uh, such spaces could work, uh, including how that relates to uh, individual uh, private units that could be developed in a more advantageous way. Um, uh, becoming more attractive to develop, uh, how food storage and display might work out, uh, how technologies can be used, such as uh, virtual payment and uh, the technologies for uh, sharing platforms to actually organize the use of uh, the shared spaces, and also how cleaning and maintenance can be centralized and uh, taken care of. Now, um, what is uh, what has been a key point to us about this project is to address the fact that most people actually uh, in increasing numbers live alone and in rental properties so uh, what we felt uh, was key is to actually focus on non-familiar uh, housing setups um, and um, and very strongly move away from small housing units and also from traditional shared forms of housing, neither of which is a particularly good solution. When you think of, uh, for example, shared housing and shared kitchens, um, it's like we know we all know the disadvantages of maintenance and how unattractive that can be, um, um, and how uncomfortable it can be. Uh, and on the other hand. Uh, with uh, small units that are theoretically fit for people living alone. Of course, that's an incredibly expensive and uh, ecologically problematic uh, solution. So what we are interested in is uh, alternatives uh, for such households that are neither and, and have the advantages of both. Uh, next one. Um, and next point to us was to look at the kitchen again as part of the city and to look at all the activities that take place uh, in the mundane space and in, within those mundane habits of kitchen use. Uh, something that actually forms the larger and more important processes of the city um, and try to reorganize its logic and redesign it in a way that it creates closed loops uh, and I think I won't go into this in, in, in too much detail. What we try to do is address also how our lifestyles have changed and how our habits are different and take them very seriously and try to analyze, um, you know, on the example of the kitchen use, what is it that we need and how are our requirements of how we cook and what we cook um, uh, different and uh, what we found is that it's something that you can you can actually structure and systemize, and you, and you, the only thing is you might find out at the end that uh, what is typical for us is that our needs are constantly changing. You might need very little equipment and very little space uh, to do something very basic um, 
for dinner and then you might want to do a massive complicated brunch for loads of people the day after so all sorts of kind of um, um, big shifts that are our traditional housing stock is not really cut out for. Um, and yeah, what we are interested in is uh, how you can how you can tap into uh, these changes and start adapting housing stock to uh, changing needs uh, rather than trying to do it the other way around like we normally do. And next big point about the project was, uh, I think, um, our approach to new technologies. Um, we are very keen on taking them seriously and uh, engaging with them in a, in a critical way. Well, we're not naive about all these technologies that are completely changing how we live, but uh, we do feel that uh, architects could definitely look more into um, uh, maybe positive possibilities um, uh, as well. So again, on the example of the kitchen, um, what we were thinking is uh, the, the platforms that we use to share cars or to um, rent Airbnb or to manage virtual payments are, are, are basically the platforms that we could also use to select exactly the kind of kitchen space that you might want to use at any uh, time, depending on the size of company that you are with or want to cook for, the level of cooking you want to do at the moment, um, and also the extent of, or the, or the kind of the extent of uh, exposure privacy that you want um, at a time. And ideally, um, you could just opt for the right kind of uh, space uh, every time and uh, use that. So um, maybe without going back, um, when we talk about shared kitchen, then one of, the, one of the key points is that it's not one family kitchen that you share. Uh, that's not how it works. The way it works is that you have a series of very different uh, spatial setups and infrastructural setups. And because you have a series of them and they are varied, it allows you to always choose what, what you, and use what you actually need. Um, and um, yeah, uh, two years ago when uh, the Urban Jigsaw program uh, ended, we had a, a very, very exciting conversation with uh, four <laughs> fantastic people who, who were really, uh, who, we, I think we're always going to be grateful for their contributions. Owen Hopkins, Dan Hill, Carolyn Still, and Professor Tim Lang. And we basically ended on the note that what needs to happen for this project to go forward is to prototype it. And, oops, other way around, sorry. Um, uh, of course, there are, the, the, the project has at least three different aspects that needs prototyping. Number one is real life use. Uh, number two is um, uh, the technological platform that allows its operation. And number three, uh, the regulatory aspects and also finding the legal loopholes to be able to do that. And uh, we've been doing project to address each of these aspects, but I thought that today I would show one that is maybe least typical for a kind of architectural practice, which is how we got engaged in organizing a summer festival. Um, so basically we knew that in order to prototype a our shared kitchen. We needed seven things. First of all, we needed a 
some form of food supply, a space, uh, installation, utensils, users, an IT system, and assistance to make it happen. Now, at this time, we actually found out that was the time when Amazon ventured into grocery shopping with the $14 billion project, developing the Amazon Go kind of just walkout technology that you might have uh, read about in the news. We thought that maybe we'd let them, we'd let them develop the technology and we'd focus on the rest. And uh, because we would uh, try to do the, the prototype without uh, an IT system uh, operating it, uh, we also had to, that meant that, uh, that we had to get rid of uh, uh, transactions or at least monitoring the financial transactions. And that meant that we needed food that was either free or we needed a kind of membership-based uh, model for the, for the use of the space. Uh, second, because we wouldn't then generate much money or profit on, the, on these um, uh, transactions, uh, we needed space that would be free or very cheap. Uh, we hope to get installations and utensils in the form of donations, sponsorship and uh, from volunteers. And um, I, the last key thing was that we needed users um, who wouldn't have standard kitchens, but would need to rely on the kitchen that we would supply, and would need a critical mass of these uh, people to actually uh, test it. Um, so basically what we uh, found out is that it's a summer festival where you can do all of these things. And um, this is how we ended up in Fredericia, uh, uh, organizing or taking part in the organization of the European Architecture Students Assembly, which is a two-week summer school for architecture students from all over Europe, where they work together for two weeks um, uh, around an annual team, which in this year was uh, uh, hospitality. Uh, we had a, a, an old hospital building to host these 600 people, uh, which the municipality uh, was hoping to turn into Denmark's largest health center. So at one point we realized if we do this project, we can on the one hand experiment and prototype our Hackney Kitchen project here, but on the other hand, it might also become a useful future part of the, of the health center. So we started collaborating also with uh, local stakeholders, charities, um, and so on, to make it some, something valuable for the, for the, uh, the local uh, community in the, in, the, in the long run. Um, it, it, during these two weeks, we had to we feed these people from day one. So everything either had to be ready on day one, or we had to have a solution. So what we did is uh, use the original industrial kitchen of the hospital, which was capable of uh, feeding uh, um, loads of people the exact same meal. So we had that for a start, and we used this small red wing, uh, these spaces that weren't used anymore to develop our food lab, the experimental uh, kitchen space. Uh, this was the industrial kitchen, and this was the space we were allowed to experiment in. And uh, we had a couple of teams to help us. We had a small team of uh, architecture students helping us develop and build this space for, uh, the, uh, for the 600 people. We had a group of volunteers taking part uh, in the large-scale food preparation uh, led by a professional chef. 
uh, and we had uh, collected tools, utensils, and machinery, all sorts of things from local businesses and uh, people. Uh, so it, it, it didn't look great, but, uh, but it was a nice patchwork of kind of collaborative effort. And um, yeah, and, this, and the students kind of, while they were uh, on learning how uh, the urban food supply chain works, they're also kind of designing how their kitchen could be working and how 600 people could actually share that. Uh, we collected leftover food uh, and rescued food from waste every single day from local food businesses. Uh, so we had, uh, we had free food that we could distribute in this uh, open kitchen area. And um, yeah, maybe. So, um, and we went through all the stages of the food, su food supply chain so that they would understand what exactly happens and what needs to be accommodated. And uh, at the end, um, we built a space that used a lot of the things that we collected and what the day built. And, uh, and while it was an experiment for us to test our kind of more generic ideas, it was completely cut out for this space and this community and the local circumstances with solutions that are uh, yeah, very um, uh, kind of unique uh, for there. And since we had a kind of smaller spaces, so we couldn't do a whole large variety of different um, uh, different kitchen setups, uh, things are relatively flexible and people kept uh, moving and changing the space depending on whether they wanted to do a big dinner or uh, loads of uh, people were cooking in couples or just big community cooking. So it kept, it kept changing and it also resulted in completely new kind of behaviors such as people um, wearing their coats and jackets and uh, backpacks and cooking for it two hours. And so all sorts of kind of unusual things. Uh, yeah, this is this is an, an image of this uh, space. It, uh, my one of my favorite things is how, how composting had an evolution, and how uh, 600 people learned how what composting is, and also the kitchen learned how to do it. And finally, uh, at the end of it, uh, having every, all the all the local kind of soup kitchens, charities, and green organizations, municipality involved, uh, we also managed to invite the whole town for a town feast at the main square of the town which was also kind of a, a celebratory way of giving this uh, space over to the local uh, community. Um, I think sort of the, the, maybe the main lesson about this project is that we proposed a project here for a Hackney site, uh, uh, but, uh, but it's the sort of idea that was very typological. Um, it was not uh, bound to particular site, it was just driven by a typical problem. So we had a good chance of trying uh, opportunities all over, even in another country, in a type of region, to experiment with the same kind of ideas, uh, while also making a very serious contribution to a small local um, rural communi community where such projects wouldn't necessarily happen. And maybe uh, one last word, uh, just to quickly uh, show the team. Uh, so we're, uh, we have uh, two economists. We have Rachel, who is a, uh, also a, a venture capitalist in fintech. Uh, we have a project manager, Esther, who also works with the UN uh, Transformation Network. We have Joseph, uh, who is an architect-architect, uh, who is currently running uh, three projects with uh, construction on in Dublin and London. 
and we have Phil Florian, who's also an architect and an activist, who is based between Paris and Calabria, and mostly uh, working on his project, the SAP Europe, which helps uh, African refugees' uh, situation in southern Italy. And uh, last but not least, uh, we have just uh, recently secured funding to continue our kitchen project in a form of a PhD project that uh, we will be doing in collaboration with the Alto University Sustainability Hub uh, on kind of developing design strategies for creating circular food systems in European cities. Uh, so uh, yeah, this, this is where we are right now. Thank you very much. Uh, good evening, Laurie Chetwood of Chetwoods. Uh, we're generally known as commercial architects. Hang on a sec. Um, but every so often we put our head above the design parapet and hopefully get a bit of credit from our peer group. Quite a difficult balance sometimes to make a living and impress the peer group. So uh, the Royal Academy competition through Owen originally was uh, an opportunity to do just that. So just to remind some of the people possibly haven't seen this, uh, that was the original brief. It was quite interesting. It was a brownfield site brief but it was also addressing how we could best use those to uh, uh, infuse life into some of the communities that needed it. So we set off with that in mind. Now, interestingly, uh, to actually pick a, a decent competition, you've got to have a decent idea in the first place. And initially, we didn't have one um, until we had a sort of lunchtime session and nobody really came up with, a, with any ideas until one of our graduates stuck his hand up and said, how about London's longest brownfield site, six miles long, uh, running from Paddington to Whitechapel. And so everybody went, well, hang on a sec, that sounds a bit odd. I haven't seen that. Anyway, it was the tunnel, the twin tunnels under London, disused, used to be the Royal Mail tunnels, um, used obviously to deliver post, actually mothballed right at the time when perhaps the Royal Mail should have been thinking about using it. Um, so there you see the sort of timeline. Um, Around about 2003, it was mothball. Boris decided to mothball it, fortunately. He said, let's not use it for the spoil from Crossrail. Let's actually uh, just preserve it. So a possible opportunity for changing technology and changing the way we live. That, that tunnel, in my opinion, is now absolutely ready for reuse. There you see it. It's actually, uh, you can see the, the map at the top there, uh, from Paddington to Whitechapel, a series of underground stations all the way along its length. It's around about three metres diameter. Um, it's got stations underground. It's a rail system, as I said. Um, and it's got shafts, usually about five in each station up to the surface. Now, some of those have been capped off. You can see that in the reds and the greens on the surface. But nevertheless, it's about 70 feet down, not a huge distance, especially when you're just going down instead of across. Um, the lowest one was we at the same time took the opportunity to have a look at some of the other underground uh, spaces and we've since developed that into hidden spaces which um, is an interesting, uh, interesting premise for some of the things that are happening in our society today, particularly in the city. Um, another good point is this, these are all the dark green ones, are all the roads that come into London 24 hours a day. So you can see in the middle uh, there's a bit of a gap. So our tunnel runs through the middle of that and also run through some of the most significant parts of the, of the city, um, starting obviously in the West End, or certainly residential to start with, then the West End, up to Mount Pleasant. There's a big development going on there you've probably heard about, and then out to Whitechapel and under the city. Um, so quite an opportunity to 
breathe life into certain areas and also to uh, change the way we actually do business in some of those areas. We also, at the same time, we had the hundreds of headlines going through, as everybody knows, about the terrible pollution in London and the dangers to us all from that and the number of deaths associated with that. We, just to add into the mix, we do a lot of logistics. Now, that's been quite a dull sector for a few years. Now it's not. It's probably one of the most vibrant sectors uh, around. It's also, for inner city or urban logistics, it's a fantastic opportunity to try and serve what is becoming quite a problem. Lots of housing going in. Well, how do you actually serve the housing? How are you supplying the housing? Okay, put more, more wagons on the road, more, more vans, but more pollution, more, more congestion. So a huge drive by developers at the moment to try and find out, find ways of bringing goods into London without necessarily bringing them in by car or van or HGV. So we have an expertise in that area. This is a Chinese project, sublime to the ridiculous. We put the logistics on the, on the base level and then the sort of green and pleasant land on the top. I mean, really, as a premise, that's not a bad idea. Put all the stuff you don't really want to see out of sight and put the green and pleasant land on top. Anyway, after all that, we had a sort of a brainstorming session and we looked at all the different ideas we could possibly use this well line for. Um, we went round the houses, we thought of cycling, but we probably realised that most people on bikes want to be seen to be on bikes and certainly want to be in the fresh air, in inverted commas, in London. So we sort of discounted that. But there are a number of others that actually made some sense. The fresh food supply that you've already mentioned. Um, we knew that Amazon were thinking of that. Was this a possible way of getting fresh food quickly around the city? Uh, but obviously we, we fell on the logistics side, which um, we knew something about. We thought that could supply London, could take traffic off the road, and could be a much more healthy proposition um, by doing so. Uh, some of the other ones weren't discounted. Emergency supplies, the line connects a number of hospitals, as you'll see later. Waste to energy, we could easily look at an environmental solution with the tunnel in mind. Uh, data storage, fantastic opportunity for an end user, somebody who wants to take on the tunnel. In fact, we'll come on to that right at the end. To, to use that to connect right across London. You've got a ready-made set of data routes through there. So this was what we eventually came up with. Very quick one, just to recap. It was a big warehouse over the tracks at Paddington, at uh, the other end at Liverpool Street, supplied by conventional means, mainly rail. Then into the well line, we reckoned we could supply the well. From the well line, we could supply those eight or so uh, stations with goods and take a hell of a lot of traffic off the road. Um, some of the things that we proposed, because we really wanted to tailor this to what was happening in certain parts of London. So it could be retail, obviously in the West End, we could be replacing storage that a retailer could use that for sales, and, and we would have a sort of just-in-time warehouse underground. Um, or it could be a long-lasted, decent live-work solution, whereby you get goods delivered up to a workshop, you make the stuff, then goes back down the line and is sold to another market and the waste goes down the line, even possibly to build the stuff from the well line. So you take, again, take wagons off the road. We won the competition with these two guys and one of the things I think uh, was liked about it was the fact it was using existing infrastructure, a bit like the High Line in New York. It's, it's not a case of uh, doing a crossrail or a new airport or whatever. It was actually picking something up that was once obsolete, but it's actually possible now to breathe some life into it. So, well, since then, what have we done? We, we didn't stop at the end of the competition. We thought, 
let's get a team together and see if we can we can use this because it sounds like a good idea. Um, so we went to some of these guys, um, the fair old spread, Oxford Properties, you probably know as sort of Canada's pension fund, so quite an interesting uh, proposition to walk in there and suggest this, but funnily enough they were one of the most enthusiastic people that we talked to, and then we talked to a, a series of consultants as well. Um, early on the best one, or best response was TGW, Living Logistics. We worked with them on huge sheds up and down the country. We wanted to see if this line could could be used in a different way for pure logistics so they said forget the rail line let's put in a, a conveyor belt you can probably do something like 16,000 parcels an hour using the line as a conveyor a continual conveyor belt horizontal and vertical up to the surface so they can see it they did a video and uh, we know that they're as they're as practical as you get and so it's a if they said it was okay we thought we were onto something um, just other ideas that sort of popped up, the connection of the hospitals I mentioned earlier, the idea of zooming uh, emergency organs or, or blood supplies or whatever is a good one. We haven't showed all the uh, markets there, but supplying the markets to and fro was a good one. And also we thought the line was probably likely to, to provide heat, so could we, could we use those um, in housing situations, um, delivering heat, um, district heating idea. Um, so in the sort of early stages, the conclusion was this would be fantastic as a green line. It could be self-sufficient. Um, supply line stroke production line, the idea that I mentioned earlier of trying to get stuff in to make, to make and then send it out down the line, all self-contained or enclosed. Um, and the silicon line, just an idea. Could there at long last be a sort of, ha a sort of hook to hang your hat on there? So we started looking at different ideas and we decided possibly we could use the London Aquifer to cool it if we had to. Um, we've done that on a couple of occasions with other buildings. And we started looking at ways the top, top left-hand corner, perhaps it could just simply be a click and collect, possibly to work slightly more efficiently than some of the recent examples. Could then that develop? We talked to Selfridges and we talked to John Lewis. It runs under Oxford Street after all. And we went to see them and uh, they said, look, we could actually uh, take our service yard and put it into your well line and use that for commercial uh, ideas. So the idea of a market as well as reusing space that they can use and then obviously developing on the bottom right into a more sort of uh, residential idea which could be a live-work idea. So early ideas really. Then after all the publicity about Oxford Street, this was before Mr. Khan actually decided to just pedestrianise Oxford Street and all the traffic would just go somewhere else. We were looking at a possible idea of, of taking that space um, and breathing literally life back into it. Um, the idea of taking the well line and supplying all those uh, retailers with, with goods and then legitimately uh, pedestrianising it because you, you didn't have to have those vehicles to supply much of, the, much of the, the route. We took it on a bit further on the left hand side and connected it to Hyde Park. Um, when we showed that to Oxford Properties they started uh, talking about something else. They weren't quite so keen on this. It was very much an arts project from their point of view at that point but uh, generally speaking we liked the idea and it sort of connected, began to connect spaces up, um, hidden spaces in some, some situations. So, case study, we then took it on to the next stage. So we got Oxford Properties on board, they were interested, they wanted to develop it. They said, can we start looking at different ideas? How, how literally do your 
do your, does your network actually connect to the outside world? So if you look at that very crude drawing, we've got up in North Felixstowe, um, obviously a major container port, um, down Southampton, and uh, uh, obviously out into, um, into the Thames, DP World, uh, the London Gateway, which we master planned. The idea of bringing stuff in from the east and the west into the well line was, was um, actually very feasible. If you remember, I mentioned about urban, urban logistics. People are very keen on getting warehouse space into London. How the hell are they going to do that? The obvious thing is over the tracks. There's a massive area of land before Paddington and a little bit in front of Liverpool Street. Air rights are there. The idea of bridging over the tracks and creating a warehouse there where trains bring goods in, uh, empty upwards into a warehouse over the tracks, and then from the warehouse into the well line solves a hell of a lot of problems. Trains, broadly speaking, are much more efficient in how they're filled and how much they bring into London. Um, by and large, HGVs or white vans are about a third full usually. So the inefficiencies that, that there are in the way that things are delivered into London could be solved by using such an idea. This particular idea links up a series of other ideas. We've just had a developer who's bought all the NCP car parks one of two, sorry, two of which have got nine stories into the ground. Doesn't want to use them as car parks. He's looking at logistics, uh, dark hotels, student housing. Things are changing. And the idea of using something like the well line and some other sort of network and the changing spaces, fantastic opportunity to join things up in London in a sort of different network, which is beyond what we know today. Um, God. So, um, these were just little sketches. We started looking up sites around Paddington, particularly the idea of using the old Crossrail sites. Could we repair that horrible gash from West London, which, can, which sort of divides uh, the two sides of London with the Westway and the railway? Is there an opportunity to use this well line idea, patch it up, and then start to provide uh, a decent route into, into London at that point? And we started looking at huge warehouses but above that residential we're looking at the racking which is warehousing could that then start to trans transform into residential above so different ideas um i'll just move on so the urban logistics idea again the idea of picking up stuff from the tracks taking it up into a warehouse and then shooting it down the line to uh, to the rest of london began to work quite well for us um so Finally, we went back to the team and said, right, if we're going to get any further with this, we've got to put some skin on the bones of this. Um, and we started looking at uh, the cost of supplying London now. So on the left-hand side is really where we are now, to cut a long story short. But on the right-hand side are our credentials. So 16,000 parcels per hour. Heathrow to Paddington in 25 minutes. Paddington to Whitechapel, 20 minutes. We've got nine shafts, and we think the cost, we had Gardner and Theobald look at the cost. Initially, for the logistics alone, 372 million. So it's a, it's a hell of a price, but it's actually, in the bigger scheme of things, as a huge project, that's, that's quite a good price. Um, it, it does get more expensive as you, as you move on, but again, left and right. Left is where we are now. The fact that rail freight is so much more efficient than road freight. And the well line, as we began to call it, would transport 16,000, I said, now to convert that, you sort of work out roughly what a third of a, 
uh, an HGV or an LGV would carry, and we think we could probably take 30% of, of daily tra city traffic off the centre of London with this idea. Uh, more than a possibility, so this, there's the 372. Extra costs come in, as you can read down there. Further costs of inflation, obviously architect's fees, a huge, a huge element of that. Total cost, we're getting towards the half a million. We think somewhere between half a million and a billion pounds this would cost. Um, now, initially we said, everybody we've spoken to, and you can see quite a few people here, we've been to all this lot. So there's been quite a, quite a lot of activity because we think it's a serious uh, proposition and think it's a, big, a great opportunity. Uh, we've had different responses. Generally, about 98% of people said it's great. The Royal Mail own it. The only person who didn't quite like it was the Royal Mail, funnily enough. Uh, it's the single worst reaction to a presentation I've had, I think. It must have been a bad day for them. But um, we're getting around that, so it's not, it's not uh, a problem in that. And also, funnily enough, London First were... were uh, they said, look, our members are... Very are really only interested in the key issues of London that are important to London. I said, well, that's pollution, congestion, and health issues related to pollution. And she oh, yeah, yeah, well, possibly. Anyway, didn't really convince her, <laughs> but uh, we're getting there. Um, all the rest were really, really helpful and hopeful. The only th impasse was they could see it was such a huge project, and obviously there's a danger for us that if it ever went public in terms of public funding or whatever, we'd have to go through a competition. So it's interesting debate that bit, is that why would we bother if we're going to have to go through a competition? However, we have just, well, about a month ago, a very big client, I can't unfortunately uh, mention them because we've got an NDA on it, but came in and said, look, forget the politics, we can do this, uh, we know we've got the workforce that understands the problem, we're good with data, uh, we'd like to look at logistics with you. In other words, they're good with data. I'm hoping they're not going to go down that route, but logistics to supply London. And so we've got the first meeting with them uh, in the middle of April. Uh, so it, it's quite exciting. That was sort of just after Christmas. Uh, so we think we have somebody who's interested who will do the lot. And so while they're dealing with us, we're frantically now going back to all our team, padding it out to make sure that they understand that we are totally essential to this and um, hopefully we'll get somewhere but I, honestly the emphasis on this is we have used this project to, to go and see so many people that if nothing happened we've enjoyed it and it's been good fun and uh, I think uh, we've got the Royal Academy to thank for that and uh, that's about it. Thanks very much. Thank you. Good evening. Hello. Hi. Um, I'm Tom Copley. I'm one of the, uh, your Labour London Assembly members, uh, and I'm chairing the discussion uh, this evening. I want to say, first of all, thank you very much uh, to each of you for your uh, presentations. I thought they were extremely interesting. And one of the things we are drowning in at the moment in City Hall is mayoral strategies and the London plan. And what I thought was interesting about all of these presentations was that they directly addressed issues that are raised within the plan uh, or within the mayor's uh, strategies, whether or not it's how we take uh, freight off the road and improve our air quality, whether it's uh, the change in how we live, uh, looking at co-living and different models of housing, uh, and of course, a very important issue uh, of live workspace uh, for, for artists, uh, how we make use of small sites uh, and brownfield sites in, generally, in general. And it has to be uh, Brownfield, because of course, uh, rightly or wrongly, um, the Mayor has said there'll be no development on the Green Belt. Uh, so we have to be looking creatively 
uh, and innovatively uh, about how we use uh, our brownfield sites and indeed our brownfield uh, infrastructure uh, as well. Uh, and of course, brownfield land is a recyclable resource. We should be uh, repurposing it and reusing it. Now, the thing that sits at the, at, at the centre uh, of, of the Mayor's vision for London is this concept of uh, good growth. Uh, and I guess the first, the first question uh, or, or thing that I want to put to uh, the panel is, you know, London uh, is growing, it needs to grow, it's going to reach, uh, it's already 8.6 million people, it's going to be about 10 million by 2031. But there are, of course, downsides uh, to growth. And I want to sort of, the first thing I want to throw out is what do you think can be done to mitigate uh, some of the downsides uh, of the growth that we're going to see over the next years and decades? Laurie? Well, I, I suppose I sort of mentioned it earlier, but um, obviously there's this massive push to increase the housing in London. And the biggest problem I think that that's causing, obviously, is, is deliveries to, to the houses and the problem, obviously, of the roads getting clogged up. So hence the, the, the need for this almost another network somehow to supply people with stuff um, rather than sticking it on the roads. Funnily enough, I mentioned the Royal Mail. I hope nobody's here from the Royal Mail. Um, I said, look, this is a great idea. You could just franchise the line and blah, blah, and we could actually, DHL would have to use it and everything. He said, no, no, from the Royal Mail's point of view, all our stuff goes on the road. And I said, yeah, but, yeah, but that's the problem. But he didn't get it. And um, I, I think that's, that's one of the answers is that uh, we've got to get stuff off the road somehow. And uh, I can't see how that correlates with lots more housing without doing something different. Mm. I mean, it does seem like a... a Backward step, didn't it? Sort of when I think it closed around 2002, and you think actually, I, I know you know the, the you know number of letters and parcels being put, well, the number of letters certainly being posted has been reduced, but you'd think you'd want to use it more. Yes, that's, I think it, it's probably 2005 was a bit early, and they a bit unlucky to be honest, but uh, they probably could have done a bit of an out about turn and said, no, hang on a sec, this could be good. But I think it's possibly the technology in the tunnel is a, a train, and it, it's not probably the, the latest sort of thing you need now, but mm. it doesn't take much to change it. No, absolutely. A any more thoughts on uh, Kata? Yes, on I, I good think Okay. Uh, yeah, I think as probably the youngest uh, practitioner, I think I'm the one who can say that as an architect, I think what we can do is not take part in the kind of development that uh, we're not really, uh, that we don't believe in. And uh, in a way, that is obviously a luxury, but I think most of us can actually do that. And what we are trying to do in our alternative practice is to create our own projects and initiate the type of things that we want to happen and find the partners to actually um, make it make it make it happen Chris like you say it's it's a, it's a major issue I think it need, we need to give some time to at least give be um, innovative in our thinking um, a lot of the solutions at the moment are the same solutions that don't work necessarily long-term thinking is quite difficult in political climates, as, as you must know, that, that in the sense, if you say, this is where I want to be in 20 years, you need to get voted in the next five. Um, I think we have to be a bit cleverer about space. Um, so lots of space is used so for maybe 30 or 40% of the day. Um, so we have to start looking at how we can cross-pollinate spaces into the same um, physical space. Um, and also, we need to really hold on to this idea of quality. So, um, housing's a really key one. You just go to Elephant and Castle. It, you know, it, it's rubbish. I mean, there's no other word for it. Um, 
And so we, re we need to sort of not be so short-termism. And that's really difficult because the problems are here and now. I think collectively we need to sort of be brave and say this is what we want and we, we're going to put the resource into achieving it. I mean, I was really... I was quite struck with the sort of maps you put up and the different types of land, the sort of very, the very small bits, the public land, the other, the, other, the other bits of land. Do you think, I mean, uh, one of the things that's been talked about a lot now is, is, is in modular construction, modern methods of construction, is this going to uh, help us to unlock even more of that, that brownfield land and those small sites? I, th I think, again, I mean, I mean it's, it's good because it is thinking innovatively, it, it offers quality, it offers solutions to certain sites, um, but it's, it's just a tool. Um, you could, you know, if you still design badly, doesn't matter if the technology you use is brilliant, it's still bad. Um, so all of these things are just tools. But what we really need is to invest in quality thinking, um, which, you know, and, and the strategies that the GLA come up with are actually, if you read them, they are full, full of good thought. Um, it's just that we then need to be able to, to, to do those. I think that's a really interesting point. And of course, one, one thing that's you know, being introduced in the London plan is this design-led planning, which is interesting. But do, do local authorities have the resources to be able to, to deal with it? I don't know what your sort of experiences are of working with local authorities and things like that. Um, from our point of view, uh, no, I would say that was the, uh, the point. Um, I suppose if, even if they do, uh, the client and some of the particularly property developers aren't particularly interested in embracing them and eventually they will get the better of the local authority just through attrition. Uh, and so a lot of that is, is unfortunate, with the best within the world, some of these local authorities are uh, sort of undermined a bit by the obviously the commercial reality of I wouldn't call it reality the commercial aspirations of the developer. So so that is obviously a trip hazard in the in the way of um, some very good thought. And on the on the subject of, lo of local authorities, I just uh, and Chris, you um, you mentioned barking, uh, which of course is is doing I think quite quite a lot to encourage more more artists and creative people to, to move there. And I did I did see Darren Rodwell, he does think outside the box, the leader of the council, and he told me he's planning a high speed railway from Barking to Beijing. Uh, with, oh seriously, seriously, I'm not joking. Um, but but what do you think I mean what do you think the government, local councils, the GLA need to do to sort of unlock brownfield sites and get some of these projects going? Um, again, I think you have to be brave. Um, you have to say this is what we believe in. This is a strategy. This is what we're going to do, and we, you know, long term. Um, I think working with partners. Um, I, I think things like um, brick by brick, um, City West Homes, uh, Red Door. These um, housing, so just in terms of housing, that are linked to um, the local authority, delivering for the local authority commercially, but with the ideas of the local authority um, is really positive. Um, we've experienced a huge change in how we design our cities. Pre-1975, 50% of all architects were employed by the local authority. Mm. Now, that's not necessarily I'm saying that's the right way, but there's a difference about vision. Yeah, and I, I think as sometimes we lack vision. We, we lack, um, you know, utopian ideals get um, hounded out of, of our thought because oh, it's utopian, but you need a vision. Um, I think that's what local authorities and the GLA need, is a really strong vision.
Mm. Uh, it's, it's quite striking that statistic. I think it's 0.3% of architects now work for, for local authorities. Um, Kato, you, you mentioned in your presentation that you, you'd um, been proposing a project in, in Hackney. What's your, been your experience of dealing with local authority there? It was very positive. Uh, we were actually, uh, we started talking with their uh, technology people and uh, I think we were shocked by how uh, positive they were. Uh, we started working on a project where we gonna use kind of council housing um, community spaces. Uh, then the project sort of stopped because we realized that's not really a good uh, space for us to experiment because uh, we would essentially have people living in normal apartments who have their own kitchens and they would try to develop another kind of uh, communal kitchen space on top of that. So um, it wasn't, it wasn't um, at the right sort of fit, but they're certainly very open and uh, we're super impressed with them. So I think uh, we would be happy to uh, theoretically continue, continue that conversation um, again. I mean, co-housing is something that is, I think, you know, it's much more common on the continent, uh, for example, so Denmark and Germany, sort of co-living model. Do, can, you, can you see it taking off uh, uh, here as a different form of living? I think it's happening everywhere. Maybe, you know, I, I think we know that there are kind of more formal co-housing projects in, 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 in that region, but formally and formally, it's happening absolutely everywhere. And... Um, I think what is fascinating is that actually most of us are crammed into um, housing units that are that we spent the last century adapting to fit families, and now we're kind of trying to wrap our lives that are not lived in nuclear families um, to somehow work in those uh, units. On the other hand, I think um, um, kind of single people living together in the complexes like they are in the collective here. Uh, that in, in, that, in that kind of uh, setup, I think London is actually ahead because, uh, because uh, normal co-housing projects don't actually cater for people, uh, like single people. Okay. Now, what's, um, what's ch I'll start with you on this one, though. What, what's, what's changed since 2015? I mean, you know, if you were going to go back and do it again, what would you, what would you do differently, do you think? Uh, I think uh, the way people are living and working is probably one of the key ones. Um, another competition we were involved with was looking at uh, actually the Crown Estate and um, was this, how were we working? How, what was new about the way we were working? And we decided people had such varied lives now in terms of it wasn't nine to five, um, uh, that people really wanted something extra. And we've heard all about Google telling people they can take as much time off as they like because, so it's the way, it's the way people reorganize, have reorganized their lives and want to do things differently if mix work with pleasure uh, and leisure. Um, and so we looked at an idea of, of taking, say, the, the whole of the Crown Estate, which runs more or less up Regent Street, and saying, right, turn that into something of a club based around an app and actually provide uh, people living and working in London uh, facilities to live, work, and uh, carry out any sort of leisure pursuit whilst they're in the sort of Crown Estate Club or anybody else's club. And that was a sort of epitomised how, and more or less everybody in that competition, we looked at it afterward, were looking at different way, the different ways people were leading their lives. So it was a, 
a major, even from 2015, that, that's, that's changed enormously since then. So, you know, the way people are working, co-working and co-living and all that sort of thing has, has been a massive change. And now the result of that, and I keep pushing on it, but is the way it's, that sort of way of life is now supplied is probably the biggest sort of conundrum within the city. So that, that has more or less changed since 2015. There's no way anybody was talking about urban logistics in 2015. So it's a bit like the well line was 2005. People wouldn't have got it if somebody said you ought to keep that going. But 10 years later, they, they should have got it. And it's the same with the way we're living in, in, in the city now. I think it's changed enormously, even from 2015. So. Uh, uh, Sorry, Katya, I don't know. Two things that just uh, popped into my head that happened since the origin of urban chicks. One of them is the Brexit vote, and the other is uh, that uh, half the Robin Hood Gardens is gone now. Uh, so I think what has definitely changed is that, and I think this goes back to what Chris was saying about a vision, that we probably need positive visions more than ever before about how we want to inhabit our cities in the future in a way that's not disastrous for the environment, society, culture. I, I can't believe it's taken us this long to say the B word. Um, but absolutely, it's absolutely something absolutely critical. Uh, and uh, Chris, yes, what, what do you feel has changed and would your proposals be any different? No, I, th I think the problem's still there. I think uh, for us it's been a really interesting journey. Um, I think a lot of our proposals were quite naive. It was quite that sort of... I mean, it's a great time. You know, you go and sit in your studio, you think about all these ideas. Um, and what's been really interesting is we've come out of this, we've had lots more conversations, a bit like I think like we've heard from, from everybody. Um, and you, you begin to understand the nuance of, of, of the issues. Um, I think... Well, I mean... Brexit, you know, it's actually identity. Um, mm. I mean, the 47, 42 billion pounds we talk about that the creative industry gives to the London economy, one in six jobs. I don't know if we have illustrated that well. If I, we still find that amazing, you know, um, but I'm not sure collectively we understand how that works and and therefore put the value on it. Um, so I think it, I think we it's still an issue. Um, Yes, I'm not sure it would have changed hugely. I'm going to open it up to questions from the floor now. And I'll take, I'll take three and then come back to the panel. Yes, a question for Chris. Um, I just I wonder if you could reflect a bit on how your ideas work in different London boroughs. So you talked about Waterloo, about Barking. You know, would it work in Bromley or Ealing? You know, how does it work in different places? And obviously the particular things about Barking and then wanting to, I guess, create a more diverse mix of residents in the area and for it to become less homogeneous. So could you say a little bit about how it works differently in, in different parts of the city? Well, as that's directly to Chris, I'll, I'll bring you in straight away. Um, I think it's, I think it's, um, so I think the first thing is to understand that borough, like you say, different boroughs have different um, situations. So some might be more transient than others, some have got quite a sort of settled population. I think the first thing is to do is to audit, is to be able to audit, um, you know, all of those, what, what's going on in the, in, in the creative community in that borough. And I think that's the important. And then you decide which strategy. Is it about small spaces? Is it about meanwhile? Or is it about actually some policy-led strategy that would, that would most help? I think, I think that's, that's how you have to do it case by case. Quite a lot of these ideas revolve around presumptions made on how people use their space and how they use their environment and how they interact with their environment. Do you think you can actually use data like the Internet of Things? So, for example, feeding back how people use their kitchen by the appliances. 
you know, how people get their deliveries by using apps on their phones, seeing the deliveries. Do they actually choose to deliver it to work? Do they choose to deliver it to home? Again, you know, for the creative side of things, do we know when they're using these spaces? Do we actually find that they're not using it through the daytime, but they're using it of an evening? Can you actually kind of make these spaces more flexible to revolve around actually how people are using things by real data, as opposed to presumptions and kind of, for example, using a group of architecture students who might already be predetermined to think in a particular way, which normal people wouldn't be? Um, a question for anyone, really. There's been a lot of talk about vision, and we've touched on this idea that public authorities almost have a sense of uh, accountability to the public and the media in that if they accept a proposal or consider a proposal that isn't about high-density housing or, or housing for nurses, as Chris has said, um, then they, there's almost a, a sort of backlash from the media and the public. How do you guys, as uh, forward-thinking, innovative firms, think that that attitude should be tackled? How do you amalgamate... Well, how do you infiltrate this public scepticism towards